fun when a daughter sings with her parents? Isn't that cool? That's cool. Thank you. In from Thailand today. That's a commute. Woo! way early. They have to get up tomorrow to get here on time or something like that. I don't know. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is uh, our final week of our series called Group, God's Plan for Creating and Sustaining Community. Um, in the first week, if you joined us, we talked about the idea that circles, being in a circle is better than being in a row, meaning that when we gather together in a circle, sometimes around a table, that holy anointed things start taking place. Conversations start taking place that um, edify him and and bring glory and honor to him. Um, So we talked about that our tables need to start becoming places of sanctuary and holy ground, that the conversations and the breaking of bread that takes place in the home and around a table in a circle, um, big, big kingdom things start to happen. In the second week, we talked about credibility, and we looked at a story of the Apostle Paul sharing his experience and his spiritual journey, his faith journey. And we talked about how the sharing of our experiences helps us build credibility, not only with um, people who do now follow Christ, but people who do not yet follow Christ. That us being able to share our real-life experiences gives us what we could call kingdom credibility. Um, credibility in um, our lives and in our, in our relationship with God. And then the third week, last week, if you were here, we talked about confession. It was a good time of, of the reading of his word and the meditating on it. And, and we talked about King David. And we looked at, really, a confession that he wrote to God that we're able to find in the Psalms. Um, of, of the different trials that he went through, we talked specifically about his affair with Bathsheba which resulted in him having her husband killed in order to cover up an adulterous situation. It was messy. And and I was talking with with a friend um, after that service last week, and, and I think what made King David so great was his spirit of repentance. You know, we, we can look at how he slayed Goliath, and, and we can look how he, he led hundreds and thousands of people with courage, But I think what made him so great was his spirit of repentance. And so last week we talked about confession and we talked about that the devil wants us silent. But we talked about that God wants the communication between not only us and him, but us and others wide open so that we can confess what's going on. And where there's confession, there's growth. Where there's confession, there's healing. And so that's why we talked about that. Today, we're going to talk about Community in general, um, that, that, that is the word that is in our tagline. And before we dive into one particular element of community, I do want to draw your attention to the tagline of this sermon series. God's plan for, for creating and sustaining community. Now, as this church slowly or quickly, depending on how you see time, transitions into small groups... We need to keep something in mind that the four things that we're going to talk about in this series, the three before and this morning, those things are necessary for creating community. So it is not enough for us to just simply get into someone's house and lo and behold, biblical community has sprung up. 
No, there are certain elements, certain factors that need to take place in order for biblical community to arise. And so that's why we use the word creating. That's why we say in order for biblical community to be created in the first place, certain things must be present. Now, we also put in the word sustain. Because you may have, um, if, if you have ever watched a horse race, um, so there are some horses that get right out of the gate, and they're fired, and they're firing on all cylinders, and it seems like none of their legs are ever on the ground. They're just flying by. But, but sometimes, a lot of times, actually, those horses don't end up winning the race. They come out of the gate, they're firing on all cylinders, but they don't finish well, and they don't have enough energy to sustain them. So that's why we use the word sustain as well, talking about how these elements not only bring up biblical community in our lives and in our small groups, but that if we continue to practice them diligently, then biblical community is sustained. And so I just wanted to draw your attention to that because those are really important words to grab onto. Now this morning, we're going to be talking about community, but I want to talk about one particular word, and it's the word serve. We're going to be talking about service this morning and what service might look like in community, serving as a not only large community such as this, but in those small groups that you'll find yourselves coming this fall. So we're going to be talking about what service looks like, and depending on your context, on maybe a profession that you've had or someone you know that has had, the word service might mean something completely different. Um, If you've worked in what we call customer service. Uh, Sometimes if you've worked in retail or if you've ever been a waiter or waitress at a restaurant, service means something completely different for you than it means for a first responder, someone who's in the military or the police or firefighter. Um, They serve and protect. Something that um, might mean something different for a waiter or waitress might mean something different for a police officer or firefighter. And those groups of people, service might mean something completely different for a tennis player, or a volleyball player, which each round starting with a serve. So the word service right off the bat might mean something different for you depending on who you are, where you come from. But this morning we're going to be talking about Christ-like service. Now, I don't know if we can find a place in the Bible where Jesus played tennis. But we're going to be talking about Christ-like service this morning, and and. Anytime I, I prepare a message, I, I jump into the Word. That, that's a good place to start. If you're ever looking for an answer of a question, the, the Word of God is a really, really good place to start, trust me. And so I looked into Scripture, and I looked at the life of Christ as well. And, and I do want to say that as we frame what service looks like in the established church today, not only this church, but I'm talking churches all over this nation and world denominations, whatever, if you look at what service were to look like in the church today, you might think of something like this. Someone is a part of the church, and they have yet to serve in such a way, and so they come talk to a pastor or a ministry leader and say, hey, I would just be really excited to serve in this church, and and, and what is the response? And I know this from a pastoral end. Well, how do you feel about being an usher or a greeter? Right? How do, you, how do you feel about um, handing out bulletins? Now, that is an, an essential role of this church. You were greeted this morning. You were handed a bulletin this morning, and we need people like that. But, but I'm, I'm just taking an overhead view of what service might look like in the church today, and I, and I, I want to be fair, and you may agree or disagree with me. 
Um, so, so we kind of start in the ushers or greeters. Maybe we're helping set up on a Sunday morning. And then there's kind of this, like, next level of service. And it is, I'm going to help out in children's church. And I'm going to deal with the crying babies and the diapers. And, or maybe I'm going to be on, on the praise team you see here. There's always new faces up here, which is a beautiful thing. And then there's another tier that kind of exists. And uh, what that is, is I'm going to lead a Sunday school class. I'm going to be a board member. That is like the upper enchilon of service, right? You know what I mean? Like that I've made it. I am serving this church by being those different tiers. Now, I don't want to discredit anything that I've mentioned. But I want to bring to your attention that there are very few places in Scripture where there is such a detailed hierarchy of service that exists within the church. Now, Moses delegated responsibility. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and talks about how there's elders and deacons and there's these different tiers. But there are very few places in Scripture, granted, that community looked different then than it does now. But there are very few places where we get these... There needs to be all these different people doing all of these different things seeming that they're so separate from each other. There's very few places in Scripture where we find that. And in reality, where we do find service in Scripture, there is often a theme or a tagline that is associated with service. And it's a much more common theme than the... It it starts with an L. It's four letters. It's love. If there's ever an act of service in Scripture, it is premeditated by love. Where there is love, there is automatically service. And so um, I, I, I went into scripture and I tried to find the use of the word love and the use of the word serve in scripture. Um, an amazing, amazing free reference online is blueletterbible.org. Um, it is a free reference. You can look up different translations, different commentaries on every verse in the Bible. You can organize by how many times does this word show up in this book or this chapter, this New Testament, anything, blueletterbible.org. I would really encourage you to check that out in your devotional time. But I looked for the word serve, particularly in the New Testament. And the word serve, how we know it to be defined, shows up less than 40 times in the entire New Testament. And as it's accounted for in the Gospels, Jesus only uses that word, depending on your translation, anywhere from 8 to 10 times, the word serve. Now, if you work at, look at the word love, the word love in the entire New Testament is referenced over 200 times. And Jesus speaks it over 50. So every single time that Jesus is talking about service, he's talking about love five times. Does that make sense? So what, what I want us to see here is that there is really not as far of a disconnection between love and service as the church might think. Now, this is why I say that, is because I feel that days like these, that there are a lot of churches that have somehow found a way to disconnect what service might mean and what love might mean. I think there are some times where if you enter into a church culture, you think service means a particular set of things, and to love someone means a separate particular set of things. For example, if I'm going to serve my church, like we mentioned before, I might be a part of the praise team, or I might help out in children's church, or or I might um, do some type of action, which is service. 
And then there are other times where we say, well, in order for me to love someone, I need to be patient, kind, right? Love is patient, love is kind, all these different things that love is. If I really love someone, I'm, I'm going to pray for them. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong, and if you do some, love someone, you should be praying for them. But I feel that as we enter into community at large, corporate community, that we have somehow disconnected love and service. And that's something that I would like to address this morning. And there is a clear tension that exists, and rightfully so, because there's these two particular verses that might be popping up in your head right now. One of those might be Mark 10, verse 45. It says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. But then there's another verse in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his response, many of us know it, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus puts that in the greatest commandment. Now, think with me for a moment. If Jesus is God in the flesh... And he therefore inhibits perfection, holy perfection on earth. And if he says that his mission was to come down and to serve but not be served, and all the while the greatest commandment is to love God and love others, then we must assume that in every single act of service that we see Christ partake in, that it's actually love. Because if Jesus was perfect like he is, and he was then that means that really at all times he was loving. Now maybe not all at all times Christ was serving, but at all times he was definitely, definitely loving. Even the times where he was alone, he was praying for those he loved, and he was praying to God and communicating with God. And so I want us, if they were disconnected before, I want us to bring them together this morning. Because I want us to consider this when it comes to the life of Christ. What if every single healing miracle was actually an act of service? What if every single stomach that was filled with miracle bread was just really an act of service? What if every forgiven sin is Christ's service to us? And what if the thing that we sung about just a few minutes ago, his death on the cross, what if that was actually an act of service. Now, many, many people would say he did all of those things because he loves us. And I would agree with you, but I would say that out of his love came acts of service, and we're going to read a few of those um, this morning. We're going to be talking about Christ-like service this morning, and I want to present three um, paradigm shifts to you. Now, you, you may or may not be familiar with what a paradigm shift is, Essentially, a paradigm shift is this. There is um, a, a notion or an idea that exists, and all of a sudden, some millennial walks up on your church platform and drops three bombs on you and kind of flips that idea upside down. Now, I wanted to give you three, not just one this morning, um, but Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, make no mistake about it, that we always need to be revising our thinking when it comes to how we are to live as obedient servants of God. Amen? We, we always need to be applying new ways of, of thinking and loving. So this morning we're going to be talking about Christ-like service. Um, if you're a note-taker like me, I would encourage you to write these down and meditate on these 
as you continue to go about your obedient life. Um, The first paradigm shift is this. Christ-like service is a reaction rather than an action. Christ-like service is a reaction rather than an action. And, And this is why I say that is because I feel like right now, if you were to serve someone or a group of people, you very well think that it is something that just must be done because it must be done. I am called to serve, and therefore I must just do something in order to fulfill that requirement and command that is on my life. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, if you would. We are going to look at a few verses that point to how Christ-like service is a reaction rather than kind of a mindless action. Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. This is one of the accounts um, where Jesus feeds a, a large group of people. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from very far away. His disciples answered him, saying, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, he gave thanks over them, and he broke them, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And the disciples set them before the crowd. The story ends with a lot of leftovers. Um, but we find here that, G, that this particular act of service was not necessarily sparked by hunger, but it was sparked by the love and compassion that Christ had for them. In verse 2, we see that. Jesus looks out on this group of 4,000 men, but there are many, many more women and children as well. So more than 4,000 people are being looked at right now, and they have been with Jesus for three days. Imagine a group that large following you for three days. A little creepy, right? But they're hungry, and, and Jesus has love for them, and he has compassion on them, and it is out of that love that he reacts It is not necessarily him looking out at a crowd and saying, well, I need to act. I need to do some type of action in order to fulfill the needs here. No, he reacts out of the love that was stirred up inside of him. Love, Christ-like service is a reaction of the love of Christ stirring up emotions in us rather than an action that we just feel like we need to do. Service without love, I would argue this morning, is pity. Service without the feeling of love as the reason for the service, I would argue, is an act of pity. Because right off the bat, if you want to serve someone and you don't really love them, you want to serve them because you feel that in some type of way, they are below you somehow. And that you want to serve them in such a way that you maybe, just maybe, will be able to elevate their social status to yours. Which is not how we should be thinking about anything. Service without love is an act of pity, and love without service cannot exist. There cannot be love and no service. And I would argue that if there is no service, 
then there is a kink in a hose. That, that if there is just not an outpouring of service and this passion to serve, then there is something wrong with the love inside of us. And this goes back to the disconnect between love and service. This goes back to somehow we may have disconnected these two things. And so our first shift is that Christ-like service is a reaction to the love inside of us rather than an action itself. This is the second. Is that Christ-like service is based off of needs more so than passions and talents. Now, I, I don't want to discredit the skills and the passions and the talents that are represented in this room. But I do want us to turn to Acts chapter 6. If you would turn there with me. Acts chapter 6 is where the church is really starting to take off. The number of believers and disciples is growing, and the 12 are becoming in charge of more and more people as they continue to preach. Now, as the church grows in the areas that it did, those disciples began to find more and more needs that were amongst the people. So we're talking about how Christ-like service is based off of needs rather than passions and talents. Look at Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first three verses there. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, you might be able to figure this out by context, but there was kind of a rationing off of the resources and food, um, whether this was a daily or weekly thing. Um, we don't necessarily know. It varied by community. But there was a distribution that took place. And there were complaints that the widows that were a part of this particular community were not getting their fair share, so to speak. So there were complaints that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we, we meaning the twelve, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, who will appoint, who you will appoint to this duty. Now this is what we find, is that right off the bat, qualifications are sought, right? The twelve call on the crowd of people and say, we need someone to fulfill this need, to fulfill this service. And it would not be right for us to leave our duty and our command to preach the word of God. Whatever they were preaching was working, because the church was growing. But as the church grew, like I said before, the needs grew as well. And these are the qualifications that are sought after when this need comes about. They look for people of what? Good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Now, I think something that I would do, and and maybe you would do this as well, is that if there was, let's say, a group of a hundred of you, I think the first thing that I would probably be led to ask is, does anyone have any experience with serving tables, working in a cafeteria, working in a kitchen, some type of restaurant? Does anyone have those experiences? And we would ask for a show of hands, and, and maybe, yeah, there, there's a couple already. And, and, and maybe there'd be seven of you, but maybe there wouldn't be, right? A need presents itself. It has to do with food and serving tables. But the 12 don't look for people who have done it before. 
they look for people who are really just good people and full of the Spirit of God. Those are the qualifications that we need, really, to do anything. Amen? Isn't that a good thing? Because, you know, I don't know everything. Whoa. Can anyone else admit that this morning, that you don't know it all? But a lot of times, what the problem ends up being is that needs that either rise up in our churches or in our communities pop up, and you feel like that you don't have the skill or the talent or the passion to meet those needs. Fair? So some, I think we've all felt this before. We've, we've felt unable to meet a need that exists. And so a lot of times, the only, the only thing we really can do is just say, well, I just really hope someone else can help. Because I'm not qualified. Now, I don't know how many experienced painters there are in here, but I will say this, that those beams that need to get painted out there, you don't need to have ever held a paintbrush before. Amen? So, hey, we're all included. Isn't that great? See you all tomorrow. The 12 looked for people who were good and full of the Spirit. This is what I can guarantee. That if you were to make a list of what you were comfortable with doing, and you were to make a list of what your skills, passions, and talents were, that there would be a lot of overlap. I would almost guarantee that. And I think it would be true for me as well. And, and why is that? Because we like doing what we're good at. We like doing what we have a passion for. And we like doing what we're comfortable with. But this is the problem that pops up, is that there are so many times where needs arise in our communities and we do not have a skill, passion, or talent to meet that need. And so right off the bat, we just throw our hands up and say, I can't do it, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't show up. I've, I've never gardened before. I, I, I can't show up. I've never painted before. And I, I don't really have a passion for it. But this is the solution to that problem. And, and it really lifts a burden from all of our shoulders. Is that the only qualification we need is the love of Christ in us. The only qualification we need is that we are filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom. We, we read it in Scripture. Because I can guarantee you that the seven that were chosen may have little to no experience of serving food to widows. Because who, out of a group of so many, really have experience doing that? I, get, I bet a lot of them were uncomfortable. And, and I bet a lot of them were taken out of their comfort zone. But... The people that did the job and the people that were entrusted with doing the job were not people that had had experience serving food before, but people who were full of the Holy Spirit. So, to recap, our first paradigm shift was that Christ-like service is a reaction rather than an action, and we looked at Mark chapter 8. And our second is that Christ-like service is based off of needs rather than passions. We just looked at Acts chapter 6. So, those two shifts, before we get to our third one, kind of address the how of service. Service kind of comes to life in certain ways when we look at those two things. And, and we look at Jesus's how and Jesus's why. And we, and we read a few different things in scripture. Jesus says, he came to serve, not be served. He came to seek and he came to save the lost. And he came for the sick and the broken, right? And, and not really the healthy. The, the sick need a doctor. And so we must take on that why. Christ's motives for coming down must be our blueprint for going out. I'm going to repeat that because that's a good tweet for those who are on Twitter. 
Christ's motives for coming down must be our blueprint for going out. If we're going out with any other motive, then why Christ would maybe decide to come down to this earth, it needs to be those motives. So we, 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 we talked about the how, and we talked about the why. Uh, this third shift, I want to talk about the who. And, and, and I want us to take our time here because I don't want us to get fooled again. Okay, did anyone catch that? Did anyone catch that? Someone who's, okay, thank you. The who, it's a band. They have a song, Won't Get Fooled Again. Thanks. My man. Paradigm shift number three. Christ-like service is purposed more for the not-yets than the already's. Christ-like service is purposed more for the not-yets rather than the already's. You, you might have walked in this morning and you might have looked down and seen people's names written on the floor. Those are some not-yets that are on our hearts. Those are some people who do not yet have a relationship with Christ. Those are some people who do not yet have a faith community to be a part of. But we're praying for them and we're thinking of them just like Christ did before he was hung on a cross. So I want us to imagine for a moment. I want us to imagine what would happen if churches all over this nation began doing church for the sake of the people who didn't yet go to that church. I want us to imagine that for a moment, that what if this church began doing everything for the people who aren't even here? Talk about flipping an idea upside down, right? On its head. But we need to have the not yet in mind. I'm not saying we discount the already's. But I'm saying if we don't, at least a part of us have the not yet in mind, then we're not doing our job. Imagine what would happen if churches all over this nation began living in community together for the sake of those who did not yet have a community to be a part of. As you enter in this fall to the small groups that you might be a part of, what if that small group of people that you were with started living and doing community together for the sake of the person who is not yet in that circle with you? It starts to change things. It starts to change your prayer life, and it starts changing how you do what you do and why you do it. Now, you you may have uh, seen this book before. It's called Saving Casper. Um, There is a book that predates this. It's called Jim and Casper Go to Church. Um, Jim Henderson is one of the co-authors here, a former pastor. And in the first book, it goes on an account of him and a guy named Matt Casper, who happens to be an atheist, Jim and Matt go to different churches together, and Jim, the Christian, the established believer, asks Matt, Casper, the atheist, to give an evaluation of the different churches that they go to. Now, they mostly went to larger churches. Um, They did, you might be wondering, visit Joel Olstein's church, um, Mecca, as it were. Um, Just kidding. Um, But that's kind of what takes place in, in the first book. This is the second book, and it's called Saving Casper, a Christian and an atheist talk about why we need to change the conversion conversation. If there is an atheist in your life, 
If there's someone who you know that has no interest in believing in God, I would encourage you to read this book. If you want to borrow it, I don't need it after I read a paragraph out of it in a few minutes. Um, So if you want to borrow this, let me know. This is a good read. If you have a burden for people, not who necessarily just don't know what they believe, but people who know what they believe and that it's not in God, I would encourage you to read this. And, and the entire book is really just a dialogue between Jim and Matt. Um, if you were to look at the paragraphs of this book, um, one paragraph would begin with the word Jim, presenting a question to Matt. Matt would respond, and it's really just a dialogue. And I want to read an excerpt. This is not something that I've written, obviously. This is something that a not yet has written. Okay? I, I want us to listen to the words of a not yet this morning. Can we do that? Casper says this, I think the mistake a lot of churches make is expecting the mountainous mass of people out there to come into the church. In my opinion, the church needs to go out to the people honestly and sincerely saying, what can we do for you? What is so hard about that? It gives the churches what they want, an audience with the unchurched and anyone outside of their church walls. This really is the classic win-win. And yet I've mostly seen churches, and you might say he's an atheist. What has he seen? Well, he's been to over 100 churches. And he lives in this nation, which I would argue is over-church but under-reached. He says this. And yet I've mostly seen churches that expect you to come to them, and preferably in desperation or with your head hung in shame, saying things like, I'm a sinner, I'm helpless, worthless sinner. Please save me. Or better yet, with their wallet out. Saying things like, I'm a helpless, worthless sinner who can hand over 10% of my earnings. Save me. There are many churches, too many, that have shown they'll do whatever it takes to lure you in. Yes, I said lure. Rock and roll music, movies, and special guest star speakers. What's the big hurdle here? Why can't these churches understand that the point is to serve others? An atheist says, just go out there and do the work. Even if you're trying to just be friends in the hope that you will someday save me, then do the work to be my friend. If I recall correctly, Jesus commanded you to serve others, and he's not wrong. He didn't sheepishly drag his toe in the sand, look down at the ground, and say to his followers, Well, I guess it would be nice if maybe you could, you know, serve other people. If it's not too much trouble, if it works for you. No, he didn't say that. He said, Do this. When you do the work, when you do what Jesus commanded you to do, you not only do what he expects of you, but you get a chance to meet people the kinds of people you want in your church. And you set yourself up for success because the people you meet will see that you are a walking walker, not a talking talker. It's a good word from someone who doesn't believe in God. Now, every time I speak to a group of people, I always ask what their next step is. I I always ask them to consider what the Holy Spirit might be stirring up inside of you to figure out what your next step is, considering what we have talked about this morning. So in a moment, as we, we close at the Lord's table, I would ask you to consider 
what your next step is. It might be evaluating the needs that exist around you because our acts of service need to be based off of the needs that exist rather than the skills that we have. So I would encourage you, maybe your next step is to evaluate the needs that exist in this church, on your city block, maybe in your workplace. Maybe your next step is to earnestly seek love rather than a new skill. Maybe you need to take a break and stop feeling like you need to learn everything there is to learn, and maybe you just need to step back and earnestly seek more of his love. Maybe your next step is to ask for more wisdom. Jesus says you do not have because you do not ask. And so if you feel like that more wisdom might be helpful for you, I would encourage you to ask for it. Because Jesus says if you come to me and ask, you will receive. Now this morning what we, what we prayed about is for more peace and justice in this nation. And so this is a challenge as you consider your next step. If you have mourned like you like like I have this week, then I want to present this thought to you. Peace and justice for this nation begins with acts of Christ-like service today. Peace and justice for this nation in the future begins with the churches and the believers serving today in a Christ-like manner. Now, before we leave this place and before our ladies go to the baby shower, we are going to take one next step together and we are going to partake in what we call communion. Now, this is something that Jesus did. This is something that he did with the disciples and this is something that the church has done since it was first born. We do this as a reminder that we ourselves have been redeemed. We do this as a reminder that His death on the cross, the the blood that he spilled and, and the flesh that was broken, redeems us and forgives us. And so you might feel this morning that your next step is a big one that you're not really excited about taking. I would encourage you to come to the Lord this morning and come to the table this morning knowing that he has already redeemed you and that he has a plan and purpose for your life. And this morning is going to be special because if there is anything that needs to get redeemed in our nation, it's the people of it. I'm not even going to start pointing fingers at governmental systems this morning. We could do that in November. I'm not even going to point fingers at police officers. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm just going to point the finger back at myself. And I'm going to say, I need the redeeming this morning. So if you're going to serve communion to our people this morning, if you're one of those people, I'd ask you to come forward and and prepare in that way. But in this moment, um, I I want us to to just take just a few moments of prayer before we partake in the Lord's Supper together. Um, Ask in these moments that as you come to the table, um, that he would speak to you in ways that maybe you've never been spoken to before. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we do thank you this morning for your goodness. And and we do thank you this morning for your mercy on our lives and, and for your forgiveness. 
This morning we, we anxiously await the opportunity to sit around your dinner table. So Lord, I pray that as we do so, that you would be speaking to us through your Holy Spirit, telling us a few things. Maybe this morning is, is your time to tell us what our next step is, how we can serve more like you, and how we can love more like you. Maybe this morning what, what you're wanting to tell us is, is something about our own lives, saying, hey, I got gotcha. you. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. So Lord, I ask you if that's what you need to say to us, that you would say it. And Lord... Maybe this morning what you need to say to us during this time of communion is, hey, you know the nation that's hurting right now? I've got this. Redemption is on its way, and I want to use you as light in this darkness. So, Lord, bless us and show mercy and grace to us in this time as we partake in the Lord's Supper.